You are now listening to the May 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we're going to share the story of Manasseh, the 14th king of Judah. His accounts appear in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 to 18, and 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 to 20. As you may already know well, Manasseh was the son of King Hezekiah, whom we considered for the last four weeks. Manasseh reigned the longest among all the kings in Israel and Judah together. The Bible records that he became king when he was 12 years old and reigned over Judah for 55 years. Manasseh is known to us as the most wicked king in the history of Judah. The Bible tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord by espousing the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the people of Israel. He did all the despicable acts that foreign Canaanite nations practice. His evil acts are recorded in detail in 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 3 to 7 and 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verses 3 to 7. Let's read from verse 3 in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 to the first half of verse 7 in the same chapter. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the balls and made wooden symbols of a female deity, Asherim, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanim, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol, which he had made in the house of God. Manasseh, alas, rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had torn down. He worshipped Baal, Asherim, and all the host of heaven. That meant he not only brought back Baal and Asherim, but all the other idols so he could worship them. Manasseh became even more blatant in his rebellion against God. He brought all these idols to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and built altars for them and worshipped them there. He erected idols he made himself in the house of the Lord. He even made his sons pass through the fire, just as his grandfather Ahaz had done, who was the evilest king before him. This was one of the detestable things the Canaan people practice, specified in Deuteronomy as acts that God forbade. 
Nonetheless, Manasseh committed the horrible sin of giving up his own sons as a sacrifice to idols. He even practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritualists, calling out evil spirits and ghosts. Also, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16 tells us that Manasseh shed a lot of innocent blood to cover the streets of Jerusalem from one end to another. His evil acts of worshiping idols were not confined to his own personal misdeeds. Manasseh misled not only himself, but also Judah and all the citizens of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that they did more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. The Bible also tells us that God eventually became furious towards Manasseh and his evil deeds. God could not stay silent anymore. God delivered the message of the fall of Judah to Manasseh and his people through his prophets that served him. Here are the verses from 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. God's fury was justified given all the blatant evil acts Manasseh and the people of Judah committed. On the one hand, he spoke of the destruction of Judah. On the other hand, the gracious God still wanted Manasseh and the people of Judah to turn back to him. So instead of destroying Judah immediately, God used the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria to capture only Manasseh and to take him to Babylon as a captive. Here's a brief historical background. During that time, there was a coup in Babylon as a result of the king of Assyria appointing his brother as the king of Babylon. Theologians tell us that, in turn, the king of Assyria thought that Manasseh was involved in the coup, so he sent his commanders of the army to capture Manasseh. This happened toward the end of Manasseh's reign. The Bible tells us that Manasseh was seriously afflicted from being captured and exiled in a foreign country. In his state of affliction, Manasseh came to his senses. He finally turned back to God. Here are the verses 12 and 13 from 2 Chronicles chapter 33. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh caused God to anger greatly and did evil in the sight of God to the extent that God would warn about the fall of Judah. 
However, Manasseh would come to his senses and humbled himself and prayed to God. And for that, God forgave Manasseh, whom God had called the most evil king among all the kings of Judah. And God reinstated Manasseh to the throne again. Manasseh experienced the grace of God, who had been patient with him through all the sins and misdeeds he had committed. In the end, God forgave him when he repented and turned toward God. He finally saw God as one true God and confessed the Lord was God. Once he returned to Jerusalem, Manasseh removed the foreign gods and idols from the house of the Lord. He threw away all the altars which he had built for idols outside the city, restored the altar of the Lord, and ordered to all his people in Judah to serve only the Lord God of Israel. There were people who still sacrificed in high places because they did not know how to offer sacrifice to God properly because they had been worshiping idols for a long time. However, their hearts were back in the right place and they sacrificed only to God. Manasseh's repentance became the beginning of all the people of Judah coming back to God. Manasseh did evil in the sight of God all his life, but God waited for Manasseh despite his sin. God then forgave Manasseh when he repented and turned back to God. The story of Manasseh makes us think once again about the mercy and grace of God. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of Kings next time. Have a blessed week. Sit
mercy unrestrained The penalty was paid in full The spotless lamb was slain Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is, For What Are You Known? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Last week was just the background. Last week we were in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, because in Acts chapter 17, that's where we learn and read about Paul arriving to this city and planting the church there. And here's the point of last week's sermon. If you weren't here and you missed it, I can summarize it real easy. Here's the whole point. Once Paul arrived in Thessalonica, that church was never, that church, that city was never the same again. That city was never the same again. Once he arrived there, that city was never the same again. And the takeaway for all of us last week was this, wherever God leads our feet in 2021, we want those places never to be the same again. Amen? I hope you want that for yourself. I hope you want to be the type of Christian that wherever God sets your feet, that place is never the same again. But today we jump into 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So one of the things that I've learned in life, and I know you guys know this as well, is just how important a person's reputation is. A person's reputation. Now, the world uses the word reputation. You know what we as Christians call it? Your testimony. Your testimony. So uh, we call it a testimony, whatever you want to call it. Whether you like it or not, you have a reputation, you have a testimony, and your reputation, your testimony matters. Your, your reputation matters, and I know this because the Bible says as much. Proverbs 22.1 says this, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Now, here's the deal. I've also learned the power of a bad reputation and how easy it is to get a bad reputation. I mean, not me personally. I've learned it from other people. Hopefully, some of you might not hold me in high esteem, so maybe I do know personally, but let me prove it to you. This is how easy it is to develop a bad reputation. Ready? What do you think of when you hear the name Tanya Harding? How many of you know that name? How many of you just hearing that name makes your knee throb? It does, it doesn't. It's like, oh, ouch. Yeah, and if you don't know who she is, she was an Olympic ice skater. The world was in front of her, and she contracted with somebody to take out Nancy Kerrigan, her chief American competitor, 
and he whacked her in the knee at one of her practices. And she thought she was, Tanya Harding thought she was going to get away with it, but you never do. Let me prove it to you again. How many of you know the name Bernie Madoff? Yeah. How many of you lost money with him? No, don't raise your hand. But yeah, the name Bernie Madoff. How about this one? This is an easy one. What do you think of when you hear the name OJ Simpson? Yeah. Here's the point. Each of these people had great reputations that were destroyed by bad decisions. They had great reputations, but they were destroyed by bad decisions. Now, every once in a while, I will meet a person who says, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I just don't care what you think about me. I don't care what the world thinks about me. And that's how they live their life. And listen, there is something very appealing about adopting that mindset, such a mindset. But we who are Christians don't have that luxury. We who are Christians just don't have that luxury. Hey, can I ask a favor in the back real quick? These lights are really bright. Can you bring them down just a teeny bit? Sure, on some level as Christians, we shouldn't care what people think about us. But people are gonna hate us because we're Christians. They just are, and there's nothing we can do about it. So on one level, yes, we don't care. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which we as Christians should care about our reputation, our testimony. For example, this is how important it is. It's so important that the Apostle Paul wrote this. To Timothy, he said, moreover, that is an elder, somebody who desires to be a leader in the church. Moreover, he, the one desiring to be in leadership, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. An elder should be a man of such commendable behavior that those on the outside of the church should be thinking well of him. They might not like his Christian faith, but they like his behavior. They might not like the fact that he points people to Jesus and tells people to believe in Jesus, but there's something about his character and the way that he lives his life that is commendable in their eyes. And by the way, whether you're a leader in the church or not, that same standard applies to you and to me. This applies to all of us. Now, why do I tell you all this? Here's why I tell you all this, because today, as we get into the book of 1 Thessalonians, we see a young church, a young church of inexperienced people who God has just saved with the most incredible reputation, the most incredible testimony that was already coming forth from these young believers. And it was affecting, listen to this. It was affecting the entire world. So it's on that note, church, it's my honor to take us to the word of God today. We'll be in first Thessalonians one. We're actually going to go through verse 10, but again, church, hear the word of God this morning, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Church, I present to you the word of God this morning. You know what's really interesting about this passage? is the names that are listed right at the very beginning, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, Silvanus is Silas, as could be translated Silas. But that name Timothy is really interesting, and here's why. You know that name. You heard of Timothy. Do you want to know why Timothy was with Paul on this journey? Why he was with Paul on this? This was Paul's second missionary journey. One big reason Timothy was there, because he, precisely because he had a good reputation. Precisely because he had a good reputation. Look what it says in Acts. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and that's exactly what happened. Paul heard of this young man's reputation. He was well spoken of. He had a powerful testimony. Paul wanted him. And by the way, this is Acts chapter 16. Remember last week's message? Where did Paul plant the church? In Acts 17. So Paul picks up Timothy right before he enters into the city of Thessalonica. Here's what's significant about that, folks. The church in Thessalonica is not only planted by men who have stellar reputations, it quickly becomes a church with a stellar reputation. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering, that word remember, remembering, This is what I remember about you. This is the testimony that is in my mind about you. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, if you're going to build a solid Christian reputation, if you're going to have a testimony for Christ, I can't think of three better characteristics on which to build than faith, hope, and love. Amen? Faith, hope, and love. And listen to this. These three words are especially relevant for this generation. Has this generation is paralyzed by fear right now? Wouldn't it be great to be known as a people who are not paralyzed by fear but walk in faith in the Lord? This generation, um, your work of faith, your labor of love, this generation is at each other's throats. Literally, it's almost like we're at war in this country. Wouldn't it be great if the church wasn't known as being part of the war, but we were known as a people just the opposite. We are so loving that we are giving our lives away. We're not fighting. We're not demanding that people give us what we want. We're the type of people that'll gladly lay down our lives for you and for others. And the last one, hope. If ever there were a generation that is mired in despair, if there was ever a time in our country where despair is really reigning supreme, it's definitely right now. Wouldn't it be great if the world looked at the church and said, man, that's a group of people that aren't afraid. Those are a group of people that are giving their lives away. And those are a group of people who have hope instead of despair. Man, this time, guys, there's never been a time in recent memory where the church could shine brighter just with those three words. Folks, the church at Thessalonica might have been a young church, but as this verse states, they were alive and active. They were alive and active, guys. And it's a powerful reminder that you don't have to be anything but saved for God to do great things with you. You might be sitting here today and you go, well, I'm a new Christian. I don't know that much. I don't know anything about anything. That's okay. If you have a heart that's devoted to the Lord, he will do great things with you. As a matter of fact, this church was, it was making such noise that with their faith, that it was not just reaching Macedonia, it was reaching to the ends of the earth, right? That's what our passage says. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere. 
Again, as a church, they might have been young and inexperienced, but man, their testimony was going far and wide. It was reaching far and wide. Now, here's what's really interesting. Again, their reputation can be summed up in these three words, work, uh, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in Christ. That's incredible. It makes me wonder, you guys ready? This is where it's going to get personal, so hold on. It makes me wonder when people think about me, what three words come to people's mind? Oh my gosh, it's a scary question. Listen, if that question makes you nervous, then this sermon might be for you. Listen, that question makes me nervous. But let me ask you, what three words would people use to describe your testimony? What three words would people describe, use to describe your walk with the Lord? Listen, we can pretend we don't care and act like it doesn't matter, but if you call yourself a Christian, then you should care and it does matter. Listen, if you ascribe to yourself that title, if you call yourself a Christian, then you have ascribed to yourself the most sacred name that you could give yourself. Let me just stop for a second. Forget the three words that people would use to describe your testimony. Let's just take a step back real quick and ask this question. Do people even know you as a Christian? That's a really interesting question. Forget your testimony is the defining thing that defines your life in the lives of others, in the eyes of others, the fact that you're a Christian or are you known as something else and then a Christian? It starts here. I want to be known. I don't just want to be known as a Christian. I want to be known as a Christian. But beyond that, I want to be known as a Christian that is walking courageously with the Lord, that in a world marred in despair, I'm a man of hope. And in a world where everybody's fighting for themselves, that I'm giving my life away, that I'm giving my life away. Faith, hope, and love. Folks, whatever you do, don't call yourself a Christian, but take a reckless or haphazard approach to your testimony or to your reputation. Listen, you may not have cared what people thought about you before you were a Christian. All right, no harm, no foul. But now that you have become a Christian and call yourself a Christian, you have crossed over a threshold like unlike any other. When you became a Christian, it was a watershed moment in your life when you went from death to life. You went from living for yourself to living for the Lord, so much so that you are now calling yourself a Christ follower. Like the young church in Thessalonica, folks, let's strive to be filled. Let's strive to be a church filled with people who, when people think about us, we're a people in their minds of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. By the way, my big fear for the church in America, and some of you might disagree with this, but I'm curious what you guys think. My big fear for the church in America is instead of being known as a people filled with faith, hope, and love were known for fear, despair, and anger. I mean, that's the state of our country right now, right? There's, we're paralyzed by fear. There's despair everywhere, and people are angry with one another. Would you not agree? It would be a shame if the people of this world look to the church and see us as no different from the world around us. We're just as fearful, just as pessimistic, just as angry as everyone else. By the way, many cultures down through history have put a very high premium on protecting one's family name, your surname, your family name. As a result, people have and still do go to great lengths to keep from bringing dishonor upon their family name. Now, a great example of this can be seen with the royal family. And the reason I know this is because I read People magazine. 
And I'm not kidding. I read People Magazine because it gets delivered to my house every other week, and I don't know why. I even asked my wife, I'm like, why do we, who, did you order People Magazine? She's like, no, we don't get a bill for it. I don't know if you, my in-laws are here. We, we thought maybe, Judd, you signed us up for People Magazine. Well, somebody did. And so if it's you, thank you, because we get it, and I thumb through it every once in a while. But a great example of this can be seen with the royal family. It all started when Prince Harry married a very polarizing American woman by the name of... I knew you read People magazine. You know her name, Meghan Markle. He, Prince Harry married, married Meghan Markle, and Britain and the world went crazy. But it didn't stop there. No sooner that he married her that they both resigned their royal titles. And then on top of that, they left Britain and moved to Southern California. Many people were in shock and are still in shock and feel like Prince Harry in particular has brought great dishonor upon the royal family. Here's the point, folks. Listen very carefully. If the people of this world will go to great lengths to protect and honor their family name, how much more should we who bear the name of Christ seek to have a type of testimony that makes an impact in this generation? I do not want to live and die and nobody knows that I was here. I want to live in such a way that my testimony goes forth, not for my glory, but for the glory of the Lord, that the way that I'm living in Tempe, Arizona will affect people all over the world, whether I know it or not, but I live the type of life sold out for him here that it's affecting people there. I want my faith to go forth everywhere. By the way, we have a word for that. You know what the word is? Viral. That's all this passage is saying. Paul's saying, your faith, young church in Thessalonica, has gone viral. It has gone all over the world. Again, the church might have been young. They might not have been that well-educated. They might not have known a lot about anything. But they were making waves. They were making noise in the first century, folks. And if they can do it in the first century, we can do it in the 21st century. And here's, here's the kicker. You want to know what? I bet you they had no clue. I bet you they had no clue about the impact that their life was making on others. I bet you they got Paul's letter and they're like, what? I mean, sure, we knew that some people in Macedonia, modern-day Greece, I mean, that's where the Thess church of Thessalonica was. It's in Macedonia. So I'm sure they probably thought, yeah, Words probably out that we've become Christians. Listen, words out, not only that you're Christians, but you're on fire. And by the way, it just isn't in Macedonia. It has gone to the ends of the earth. It has gone everywhere. That's the type of impact that your faith is making right now. And I'm sure they're sitting there, like many of you are sitting here today and go, there's no way that God could take somebody like me and, and use me to bless people on the other side of the world or to use the way that I'm living here in Tempe, Arizona to impact and bless other people and encourage them in their faith. And you know why I know you think that? Because I think it. I'm like, who am I? Who am I? I'm Bill. I'm a pastor of a church in Arizona. I'm sure I have some kind of influence on people's lives. But the God I follow is able to do great things. And folks, if he can do it with me, he can do it with you. If he can do it with a group of people in the first century where there's no electricity, no phones, no internet, no way of getting word out other than a horseback and foot and so on and so forth. If he can take their on-fire faith and impact others for Christ, he can do it in this generation with you and me. You know, what's amazing about what we learned in 2020 is how quickly the coronavirus spread. Because modern-day transportation, I mean, it literally, it started in China and they said, get ready, here it comes, and bam, it hit, it just swept over the world. And that's a powerful reminder, folks, in this day and age, anything has the ability to fall, spread far and wide overnight, including one's testimony, including one's reputation. Listen, if the young church in Thessalonica, if their testimony could reach to the ends of the Roman Empire in such that short of time, 
What can't God do with you in your testimony in this generation? Here's the amazing thing about a good reputation. It works for you day and night. It's at work for you day and night. It never sleeps. It never slumbers. It never takes a day off. You might be sleeping peacefully and yet impacting people on the other side of the world. You might be sleeping peacefully and not realizing that people in Mesa and people in other cities are being impacted because they hear about this guy or gal living wherever it is you live who is sold out for the Lord. For heaven's sakes, folks, you don't even have to be alive for your reputation to go on and make a difference. The history of the Bible and the history of the church is nothing but faithful men and women who were sold out in their generation. And here we are talking about them in this generation and their lives and their sacrifices are encouraging us today. If God could do it with them, he can do it with you and me. Think about that. Many of you are thinking, who am I and what sort of difference can I make in this generation or in this world? Not only can you make a generation in this, a difference in this generation, you can make a difference in future generations. You can be encouraging saints and people long after you're gone. If your heart belongs to God and you're sold out for him, if you will take your eyes off this world and put them on him and go all in with him, there's no telling what he can do with you and me. But here's the deal. It wasn't just their faith, hope, and love. It just wasn't those things. There's another key thing in this passage that I want to draw our attention to that really came to define the church at Thessalonica. And here it is. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This verse highlights an important truth, folks, and here it is. One of the defining characteristics of the Thessalonian church, a church in Thessalonica, is one of the things I want to define me and this church and all churches, and that is this, that we are a people that are wholly devoted to God. That we are a people wholly devoted to God. This was another key aspect of their, their testimony. Word was going out. Not only are these people walking in faith and living with radical love, and there are people of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are a people wholly devoted to God. They have abandoned the things of the world and put all of their faith in all of their eggs, if you will, in one basket. I want this generation, I want my life to be known for just that. That we would be a people in this generation who are known for the fact that we have turned from the pleasures and pursuits and idols of this world to serve the one true God. Listen, when the people of this world grow tired of the world, when the people of this world get sick of the world and and it constantly disappoints them, what do they do? They look to the church. But the last thing they need is to look to the church and see us looking to the things, the very things that have disappointed them. The very things that have left them empty, they're looking to us for hope and we're looking at the things that made them empty. Far be it from that. I think one of the worst things that we as Christians can be known for is a people who honor God with our lips but whose hearts are devoted to the things of this world. The church at Thessalonica was known for the fact that they had turned lock, stock, and barrel from the idols of this world. The things that they once loved, they turned from and that reputation went forth. It impacted people. There are people that have held loosely and gladly sacrificed the things of this world for the sake of the Lord. That's powerful. Is it any wonder, by the way, that the first two, or the first two of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses had to deal with this very issue? And God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You might remember that one of the main rebukes that Jesus gave to those in his generation was this, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The church of Thessalonica was young, inexperienced, uneducated, but this they did. They turned with all of their hearts from the things of this world and turned to the Lord. And God did this wonderful work in their life where they became people who were known as people of faith. In a world paralyzed by fear, they were known as a people of faith. In a world marred in despair, they were known as a people of hope. In a world where everybody's fighting for their own rights, they were known as people that loved and gave their lives away. No greater love than this than that one man lay his life down for another. And oh, by the way, that's exactly the type of people the Thessalonians are. Selfless people giving their lives away. John Calvin said this, by the way, about idols. The human mind is an idol factory. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he tempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. Not only is the mind an idol-making factory, here's the difficulty for you and me. We are living in America, as Christians living in America, we're living in the land of idolatry, aren't we not? We make idols out of everything. Brace yourselves because this is going to sting. We make idols out of everything from athletes to politicians to our possessions to our careers to our families. We stand at a crossroads. I do. I think we do stand at a crossroads. The church, I think America stands at a crossroads, but I think the church in particular in America stands at a crossroad. One in which the church will either be known as a people wholly devoted to the Lord or one in which we will be people who honor God with our lips, but our hearts are really devoted to the things of the world. The world's looking at us, disgusted with the world, looking for something different than the world has to offer. And they look at the church and we're looking at the very things that disappointed them in the first place. The people in the first century, when they looked at the non-Christians, looked at the church in Thessalonica, they're thinking, gosh, this is a people that have given up on the world and have gone all in with God. Man, I want to be known as that. I want that to be my testimony. I hope you want it to be yours as well. The COVID pandemic revealed a lot. It did a lot. By the way, oftentimes when something like the COVID pandemic hits, hits or something big happens in the world, people always want to know, why did God allow this to happen? And a lot of times when we say, why did God allow this happen? We want to boil it down to one. What's the one reason God allowed this to happen? The fact of the matter is when God allows something to happen, regardless of what it is, he could have a million different reasons for it to be happening. So for example, take the COVID pandemic. You can't boil it down to one thing. There's not just one reason God allowed the COVID pandemic. Did he bring it as a form of judgment? Certainly in some form he's bringing judgment. Did he do it to refine the church and purify the church? Absolutely. And are there a million other reasons that we'll, we could either figure out or we'll never know in this lifetime? Absolutely. Here's the point. One of the things I think God has done and is still doing as a result of the COVID pandemic is smashing the idols that reign supreme in the hearts of his saints. Starting with me, you guys know I love sports. You know what God did in 2020? Yeah, he smashed that idol real good in my life. 
on many fronts. Not only did he just take it away, <laughs> he's like, I'm going to sh- shut down the stadiums. I'm going to suspend the seasons. But then it, sports got very political and further, God's like, if I didn't smash it enough already in your life, Bill, let me just take it one step further. He smashed it. He smashed it good. By the way, when you watch the news, you know what the news is? The news is nothing but lamenting about all that we've lost through the COVID pandemic. Folks, listen, as Christians, remember, I always tell you, just think opposite of the world. When the world is lamenting all that they've lost, we rejoice in what God has taken from us. He's taken our idols and smashed them so that we'd be wholly devoted to him in a new way, in a fresh way in 2020. Amen? That I would have a heart. God, take those idols from me. And if it means you grinding the economy to a halt, getting rid of sports, destroying my hope in politicians so that I will have a heart that's wholly devoted to you, do it. Please do it. The world's lamenting. I'm rejoicing. I'm glad God has destroyed so many idols, and I hope he continues to do that. By the way, do you want to know the hardest commandment to obey in the Bible? The hardest commandment to obey in the Bible is also the most important commandment to obey in the Bible. This one. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Do you want to know why this is the hardest commandment to obey? Because there's so much competition. There are idols everywhere you turn in this country. By the way, too, I want to encourage you on something. Oftentimes as Christians living in America, we put ourselves down because we're looking at Christians in other countries who are facing physical persecution of some type. And we go, gosh, you know, and we shame ourselves. But I'm telling you, there is a, it's hard living in this country. There is a level of persecution and there's a level of sacrifice you have to be willing to give in order to be faithful in this country. And so don't beat yourself up if you're not like other Christians. Don't look at other people and go, why aren't I like them? God has set your feet in this country. It's a country full of idols. Walk faithfully in this generation. Be one of the few that's heart, whose hearts are fully devoted to him and know that there's nothing shameful in that. That's huge. That's a huge sacrifice. Good for you. And I'm telling you, God will take that faithfulness and he will use it to bless others even long after you're gone. He did it with the church in Thessalonica. He can do it with you as he did it with me. Here's how I want to wrap up today. I want to really quickly just tell you about a story of a man in the Bible whose heart fully belonged to God and called others to do the same, but then lost his way. And his name was Solomon. First Kings 8.61, King Solomon calls the nation of Israel to this. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord your God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as it is today. And yet just a couple chapters later in chapter 11, we read this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses. That's impossible. You would think about the 30th or 31st wife would go, stop, don't call me a princess. There's 700 of us and 300 concubines to uh, to boot. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Remember how I, just contrast these two things real quick. King Solomon grows up with David as his father, sold out for the Lord. 
And yet the testimony that went down, his testimony went down in history as one whose heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. And then take the church at Thessalonica, a young church, inexperienced, hardly know anything. And yet God takes their testimony and sends it to the end of the earth. That's why I'm telling you folks, whoever you are, wherever you are right now, and whoever you are in here right now, if your heart belongs to God, he will do great things with you. If your heart belongs to the Lord, he will do great things with you. You have a testimony, whether you know it or not. Folks, your life is but a breath. You're here today, gone tomorrow. Give your heart to the Lord fully and ask him, say, God, do great things with me. Whatever that is in your mind. If it means I only influence my neighbor, so be it. That's, that's fine. Believe that God can do great things with you. And it might not be till you get to heaven and I get to heaven to realize the full extent of what God has done with our faithfulness in this generation. For all you know, and I know none of you are going to believe what I'm about to say, for all you know, there are people in China talking about you right now. I'm not kidding. You're laughing. You're going to go, no, no, there might be a church or somebody in China going, I heard this really crazy story about a lady leaving Costco that said, God bless you. It's the way God works. That is the way God works. So let me conclude with this question, guys. What words would those who know you best use to describe you as a Christian? If you need encouragement this week, spend some time in 1 Thessalonians. A young church, totally inexperienced, with a heart that was devoted to God, literally impacted the entire Roman Empire. They were rich in faith, hope, and love with hearts devoted to God. That's it. And listen, I'm going to finish with this. If we can follow their example, then what was true of them in that generation might be true of us in this generation, that our faith might be known to the ends of the earth, that it might go viral and make an impact. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we come before you this day and we thank you for this young church that, God, you did great things with. God, you raised them up in such a short time and their testimony, their faithfulness, God reached, to the, reached everywhere in the Roman Empire and encouraged who knows how many people. Here we are 2,000 years later still talking about them. And God, then we're reminded of Solomon, a man who had so much privilege and yet threw it all away. God, use us in this generation, we pray. God, use us in the few days that we have on this earth. God, when the world looks at us, may they see a people set apart with hearts wholly devoted to you, sold out for you, people walking in faith, not fear, people who are optimistic and hopeful because our eyes are on the king and not on the world, a people that are giving their lives away, not trying to protect our lives, laying down our lives for the sake of others. God, may they see that in the church. May they see that in the Christians of this generation. So God... Thank you. Thank you that you set our feet in this generation. And God, may everywhere we go in 2021, God, may we make a lasting impression. And God, if it's your will, may that impression reach to the ends of the earth. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless you. Thank you.
programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello everyone, it's Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. One characteristic of sin is that we see another person's sin 
but we fail to realize our own sin. Therefore, there are many instances when we nitpick the sins of others one by one, and we can explain how wrong it is, but we don't think about our own sins. Even if we think of it, most of the time we interpret it by downsizing it as much as possible and don't consider it a big problem. In a more extreme case, we blame others as the reason for our sin. We blame others by saying, I am this way because of that person's fault. That person did this, so I did this. Do you remember how sin first entered the Garden of Eden? God asked Adam, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam replied, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam passed the blame to the woman and spoke as if God was to blame for making the woman. When God asked the same question to Eve, she also passed the blame to the serpent. This is one of the characteristics of sin. It's blaming others for our own sins. Of course a righteous person would not sin, but if he sinned, how would he respond? Lord, it was my fault. I did wrong. It wasn't Eve's fault. It wasn't the serpent's fault. Wouldn't he have answered like that? What kind of answer would the Lord be pleased with? Obviously, it's an answer that admits one's fault and doesn't blame others. Furthermore, if you blamed yourself for someone else's sin, what kind of reaction would God show? Israel sinned before God. Despite God's compassion, Israel repeatedly disobeyed God and became more depraved. Eventually, God judged Israel for their sin, and they were led captive into Babylon. They were held in Babylon for 70 years as captives. By God's grace, the Jews who were captives of Babylon returned to Jerusalem again after 70 years. Through Ezra, a reformation centered on God's word was occurring in Jerusalem. The temple was also rebuilt. However, God's people in Jerusalem were still living in anxiety. It's because the wall of Jerusalem had not been rebuilt. The wall was destroyed and the gate was burned, so their enemies constantly attacked them. There was a person who heard this news and wept sadly. He was Nehemiah. Here is Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard the news that God's city, the Jerusalem wall, and the city gates have been burned, and that God's people were in great trouble and disgrace, he mourned for some days. Also, he fasted and prayed before God. What kind of prayer did he give to God? Here is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. 
we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah mourned, fasted, and prayed to God for many days. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. As we have seen, Nehemiah begins his prayer with a humble heart by acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty and being in awe of God. Then he tells about the character of God. He confesses that the Lord pours his compassion and keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God's people were serving God who pours his compassion and keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. But why were they in great trouble and disgrace? Nehemiah clearly knew the reason and confessed it. It's because our descendants of Israel have sinned against the Lord. Nehemiah was born during the time of captivity. This means he wasn't born when the Israelites were taken away to Babylon as captives. In other words, he had no relations with the sin that made Israel get taken away to Babylon. However, I want you to listen to his prayer again. Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. His prayer was different from what Adam and Eve said. He didn't blame others, but confessed that he and his father's family sinned and acted very wickedly toward the Lord. How would we have confessed? Would we have said, I didn't sin, but our ancestors have sinned? Wouldn't we have said, Please don't place the cost of our ancestors' sin on us. Nehemiah didn't blame others. He confessed the people's sin as his sin. Then he repented before God. God responded to his prayer. God used Nehemiah to rebuild the wall the size of 30 acres in the short span of 52 days. A prayer after God's own heart is a prayer that confesses sin. Also, it's a prayer that doesn't blame other sin, but a prayer that considers other sin as one's own and confesses and repents. Our nation is greatly sinning before God. Our churches are greatly sinning before God. It's easy to condemn and judge others. However, when we pray by confessing other sin as our sin and seek compassion before God, then God will heal and restore our nation. I hope that Nehemiah's prayer, which is a prayer after God's own heart, will be within us. I'll see you next time from Prayers After God's Own Heart. Goodbye!
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.